Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right, well, Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing our year-long trek uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Today's part 41. The good news is I think we're only going to have 43 parts. <laughs> but today I want to look in depth at just one verse and how it connects to one of the most amazing passages in the scripture, Psalm 22, and how Yeshua fulfills each and every single verse. So turn with me back to Mark 15, Mark 15, verse 34. And uh, the text says this, at 3 p.m., Yeshua cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now Yeshua here, he's quoting verse 1 of Psalm 22. And this is a standard Hebraic way of referring to the entire psalm. You know, indeed, the psalms were not originally numbered. So you couldn't just refer to it by saying Psalm 22. No, rather, you would quote the first line. Uh, and as we're going to see, Yeshua also quotes the last line as well, further reinforcing his reference to the entire psalm. So his Hebrew listeners standing at the cross who knew the psalms would have immediately re referenced the entire psalm in their minds when they heard Yeshua utter these words. Now, this psalm was written by King David, in the 10th century B.C., about 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Yeshua. And in traditional Jewish thought, this psalm is seen as prophetic. Indeed, uh, Rashi himself, probably the most well-respected of all the Jewish commentators, wrote that David described the Messiah's suffering in Psalm 22. So on the overhead, this is what Rashi writes about Psalm 22. It was because of the ordeal of the son of David, the Messiah, that David wept, saying, and he quotes Psalm 22:15, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. So Rashi acknowledges that Psalm 22 is all about the Messiah. And by the way, Rashi is actually quoting an even earlier Jewish source from the 8th century of the Midrash Basikta Rabati, uh, which, which goes on to describe how Messiah will suffer for our sins as described in Psalm 22. And we know, of course, this is not an historic psalm about King David himself because there's no event in King David's life that fits these descriptions of what's happening in Psalm 22. So yes, King David wrote it, but not about himself. It's prophetic. It's about Yeshua. And he quotes, Yeshua quotes Psalm 1 from the, from the tree. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, throughout the Gospels, Yeshua always refers to God as his Father. This is the only time where he does not. Indeed, he simply says, my God. Uh, there's a sense of distance there. Uh, and then he says, why have you forsaken me? So let's walk through the entire psalm, verse by verse. Look at Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish? Yeshua is being forsaken because he's taking our sin, your sin, and my sin upon himself. Those with sin cannot stand in God's presence. God must judge sin. So he turns his back on his son. 
God's wrath falls on Yeshua. As he becomes our sin and guilt offering, God abandons his son. He's being rejected so that you can be accepted. And Yeshua conquers sin, uh, and he overcomes death, uh, and he's brought back. He's victorious. The resurrection proves that God the Father accepts his sacrifice. Yeshua is vindicated. The forsaking, therefore, is only temporary. Dark, the darkness over the land was only temporary. It's on the overhead. Uh, so Yeshua says, why have you forsaken me? For two reasons. Number one, because he's becoming sin for us. And number two, because he's fulfilling Psalm 22 and drawing our attention to this psalm. All right, the next verse is Psalm 22, beginning in verse 2. My God, I cry out by day, and you don't answer me. By night, and I find no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. For the fathers trusted in you. Uh, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not put to shame. The psalmist here emphasizes God's holiness. So when he says, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying God is unholy. No, uh, there's a tension here. Indeed, God the Father forsakes him because God is holy. Yeshua becomes sin for us on the tree. So God the Father, in his holiness, must forsake him. Yeshua is forsaken so that you won't be. So that you and I might be forgiven. He set aside so that we might be brought in. Look at verse 6. 20, Psalm 22, verse 6. But I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone and despised by the people. The idea here of being a worm is being lowly and pathetic and despised and reproached and rejected. And this is exactly what happened to Yeshua. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. He, uh, he, was, uh, he was despised and rejected. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, interestingly, the word used for worm here in the Hebrew is an interesting word. It's not the usual Hebrew word for worm, which is the word rimah. Uh, it's a special word here. The word used here is tola'at, sometimes called tola. And the scientific name for this particular kind of worm is, is for those biologists out there, it is Cocos ileus or Kermes uh, ileus. And the Temple Institute in, in Jerusalem has recently gotten a, gotten a shipment of these particular worms in. Uh, these worms are known as the scarlet or crimson worm. The color crimson and scarlet, it's a, it's a deep blackish red. It's a color of blood. These worms were used to make the red dye to color the high priest's robe. And also the dye used to, on the ramskins to create the, the covering over the tabernacle in the wilderness. These worms are used to make a very intense red dye, a symbol of the blood of the covenant, blood atonement. But what's even more amazing is if you understand the life cycle of this particular worm. When the female worm is ready to lay her eggs, which happens only, only once in her lifetime, she climbs up a tree and attaches herself uh, to the tree. The worm basically gets stuck there and creates a hard crimson shell around itself that hardens and glues securely to the tree. She then lays her eggs under her body, under this protective shell. The eggs hatch and are born, and for the next three days, the baby worms feed off of the living body of the mother worm. After three days, the mother worm dies, 
And her body excretes this, this, uh, excretes this crimson or scarlet dye that stains the wood to which she's attached. So there's now a red stain on the tree. The dye also stains the baby worms. The baby worms remain crimson colored their entire life. On the fourth day, the tail of the mother worm pulls up into her head, forming a heart-shaped body. That's no longer crimson, but now it's turned into a snow-white wax that looks like a patch of wool on the tree. It then begins to flake off uh, and drop to the ground like snow. Note the symbolism here with Yeshua fulfilling Psalm 22. Like this Tola'at worm, Yeshua went up on a tree. Like the worm, he was physically attached to the tree. Uh, and he died. His blood stains the tree crimson red. He died so that we, by feeding off his sacrifice, might live. His work, like the worms, is completed on the third day. Like the worm, three days later, Yeshua is not to be found. The tomb is empty. Just like the shell of the mother worm is now empty. And just like the baby worms, we are now covered by his blood. Just as the mother worm, when crushed, excretes this crimson scarlet dye, which covers both the baby worms and stains or marks the mar and stains and marks them, Yeshua also was bruised and crushed for our iniquities. His scourging, the nails driven into his hands and feet, brought forth this, this crimson scarlet blood that washes away our skin, our, wash, I'm sorry, washes away our sins uh, and marks us as his own. And just as the baby worm is dependent on the mother worm for the crimson dye uh, to give it life and to mark it, a repentant sinner likewise must depend on the blood of Yeshua for forgiveness of sins and to receive new life and to be marked as his own. And once the scarlet worm dies, uh, it turns white as snow and looks like a patch of wool. What an amazing picture. Look at Psalm 118. Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. On the overhead, please. Psalm 118. Come, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, and this is from the same Hebrew word of Tolaat, they should be white as snow, though they be red like crimson, again, Tolaat, they'll be, they'll be like wool. Amazing fulfillment. Next verse, Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. Uh, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. They say, well, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. We see this fulfilled in the crucifixion, as Yeshua is insulted and reviled and reproached and ridiculed and mocked from the cross. Indeed, this is actually quoted, by, this verse, by Yeshua's enemies. Look at Matthew 27, verse 39. Those who passed by hurled insults at him shaking their heads, saying, you were going to destroy the temple and, and, and build it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the Torah teachers and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way that rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. Yeshua fits Psalm 22 verses 7 and 8 perfectly. 
He's the one who's mocked and insulted. The, the chief priests and the Torah teachers and the elders even quote verse 8. They say this. Look at Psalm 22, verse 8 again. He trusts in the Lord, that the Lord rescue him. They're quoting this probably without even realizing that they're quoting this verse when they say this at the cross. So the picture here in Psalm 22 is of one who's suffering, and it appears that God no longer approves of him, even though in the past it was thought that God did approve of him. This completely fits Yeshua. Psalm 22, verse 9, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even in my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Interestingly, we have in these verses uh, a birth uh, and a mother, but no human father is mentioned. So perhaps we see here a hint uh, at the virgin birth. Verse 11, Psalm 22, verse 11. Don't be far from me, for trouble's near and there's no one to help. Again, this fits the crucifixion. All these Shua's disciples abandoned him and fled. There's no one to help. Verse 12. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey, uh, they open their mouths wide against me. Now, it's typical in, in Hebraic poetry to use animals as a metaphor for people. The bulls of Bashan refer to powerful people, people strong like bulls, people who are in power, and especially refers to the Edomites, this particular reference. Interestingly, Herod, King Herod, was an Edomite. So again, this fits Yeshua's crucifixion. Verse 13 says, verse 13 says, roaring lions open their mouths against me. The Hebrew word here for, for open wide or, or gape, it literally means to bite as a ravenous animal, like a lion, and to grab and to pull at its meat, its food. And we'll get into more of this lion metaphor in a moment. Uh, verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart's turned to wax. It's melted within me. The text says this person's bones are out of joint. Medical doctors have detailed what happens when someone is crucified. This verse is a vivid, dramatic, and medically accurate picture of death by crucifixion. Well, when your hands and your feet are nailed to a cross, your, your hands are stretched out, uh, your body weight begins to pull you down, uh, and this begins to tug and to pull and to dislocate your shoulders. Uh, it pulls and expands your ribs so your, your lungs stay open and stay in an open position and you can't exhale properly. So you have to push up on your feet to breathe, which is, is incredibly painful. But your feet are nailed. <laughs> this is why the Romans often would break a person's legs so they no, no longer could push up and exhale to speed up their death. And you die by asphyxiation. This reference here to my bones are out of a joint perfectly fits what happened on the cross. The Hebrew word here for out of joint also means spread out. My bones are spread out. Exactly what happened on the cross. I'm poured out like water. Physically and emotionally, Yeshua was poured out. Uh, he sweated great drops of blood the night before his death. They kept him up all night with, with three different uh, trials, you know, monkey trials, fake trials, you know, illegal trials, trials before the Sanhedrin, before Herod, uh, and before Pilate. Uh, he was beaten merciful, mercilessly. His flesh was ripped apart. He was poured out. And his blood is literally being poured out. Uh, he's been dripping blood all over Jerusalem for hours. Uh, there's his blood in the courts of the Sanhedrin. His blood in Herod's court. His blood in Pilate's courtyard. 
blood on the way to Golgotha, so much he faints and someone else has to carry his cross. Blood on the cross itself, of course, his hands and his feet are nailed. He is being poured out. And now that this blood is spilled in both Jewish and Gentile courts, because Yeshua's blood is for everyone. His blood covers all our sins. And the text says he's poured out like water. In crucifixions, your lungs fill up with water. You die of suffocation in your own fluids. Verse 14, my heart's turned to wax. It's melted within me. In crucifixion, you could also die of heart failure or, or even a ruptured heart. And Yeshua's heart, we know, is literally ruptured by the Roman spear in his side because that flowed blood and water. Verse 15, my mouth's dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd is a broken, dried piece of pottery. Uh, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. In crucifixion, you suffer what's called hypovolemic shock. It's caused by a sudden and excess loss of blood. Symptoms include dehydration, incredible thirst, uh, your tongue sticking to the roof of your mouth. Again, Yeshua fits this perfectly. He even cries out from the cross, I thirst. The result of this is that the person being described in Psalm 22 is brought to the dust of death. Now this fits beautifully and poetically with what Genesis talks about. When God says, Genesis 2, uh, 2 verse 17, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the, good of no of the, of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. They eat of it, and then God says this to Adam in Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So dust in the Bible is a synonym for death. The person described in Psalm 22, he's laid in the dust of death. Again, this perfectly fits Yeshua. Do you see how precisely everything in Psalm 22 fits him to a T? The scriptures are all about him. This psalm was written by King David, and yet nothing in King David's life fits this. This is not about the life of King David. It's prophetic of the Messiah. Verse 16, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. Now, strong bulls, we said, were powerful people. Dogs uh, are despicable people. It's a metaphor for despicable people. There's a reference here to Gentiles, pagans, Romans. This makes it clear, the psalmist, by the way, it's here, it makes it clear he's describing a public execution. Uh, they surround him, powerful leaders, the despicable people, they're all encircling him. Uh, and the text says there's a whole pack, or literally a whole congregation of evil people coming against him. It's public just like in the gospel accounts. And they pierced my hands and my feet. This can only be describing a crucifixion. Now remember, this psalm was written about 1000 BC, 10th century BC. Crucifixions had not even been invented yet. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians in about the fourth century BC, and then later on perfected by the Romans to make it even worse. But David is prophetically describing in great detail the later execution process of crucifixion. Now, this is probably the most controversial verse in the whole psalm uh, because of a textual issue in the Hebrew Masoretic text. And you need to be aware of this technical issue because 
I don't want you to be taken by surprise, uh, and, and I, want you to be, I want you to be able to address it when it comes up as an objection. It all comes down to one letter in Hebrew. Ka'aru kuf alaf resh vav versus ka'ari kuf alaf resh yud. Karu means they pierced, or they dug out, or they bore through. Kari means like a lion. All of the non-Mesoretic texts read Ka'aru, they pierced. Most, but, but not all, of the Mesoretic texts read uh, Ka'ari uh, like a lion. The difference is, is the letter Vav, they pierced, versus the letter Yud, like a lion. So this variant reading is most likely due to what's known as a scribal error. For example, if some ink flakes off, uh, the, off the page of the Torah scroll, uh, a vav, the letter vav, very easily, is a long letter, very easily becomes a yud, which is a short letter. Uh, that is, they pierced, easily becomes transformed into like a lion due to this aging process. Indeed, in, in fact, it's one of the most common of all scribal errors. Transposing or transforming a vav into a yud, it comes up all the time in what's known as textual criticism. Not just in this particular one particular verse. Now, on the overhead here, this can occur due to, uh, on the overhead, uh, sloppy writing, uh, ink fading, ink peeling, parchment flaking off, parchment being worn away or torn. But the other way, uh, a yud lengthening and mistakenly becoming a vub is, is far less common. So like a lion, becoming they pierced would be much less likely. Now, the Masoretic text, like a lion, is actually the most recent text we have. So it's from the Middle Ages. So on the overhead here, next, next slide. The oldest text is the Dead Sea Scrolls, Hebrew, and the Septuagint, Greek, and the Peshitta, Aramaic. All these three, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, and the Peshitta, all read, they pierced my hands and my feet. And we also have 12 Masoretic texts that read, they pierced my hands and my feet. So not even all the Masoretic texts agree. Moreover, the Masoretic text, uh, this is uh, here. Yeah, so, so the Dead Sea Scrolls and Septuagint, by the way, they both predate Yeshua. These are thoroughly Jewish texts. These have nothing to do with, with being Christian texts. These are far older than Yeshua. Uh, and the Masoretic text, though, like, like a lion, my hands and feet. Notice this is not a complete sentence, like a lion, my hands and feet, if that, that was the correct reading. It contains no verb. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And because of this, if you pick up a Jewish Bible today, you'll know they add extra words in italics to try to make it make sense. So many Jewish translations read, like a lion, they're at my hands and feet. They add the words, they're at. Rashi, this foremost Jewish commentator, he adds the words, they maul. Like a lion, they maul my hands and feet. But the words, they're at or they maul, they're not in the actual Hebrew text. They're added in to try to fix this awkward reading. But the older majority text reading, they pierced, it does contain a verb. It makes perfect sense. They pierced my hands and my feet. And it fits the crucifixion context of the entire rest of the psalm. But God has a sense of humor. Because even if you take the Masoretic reading, like a lion, they're at my hands and my feet, think about what picture this is painting. What, are the, what is the lion doing? Uh, is, is, is the lion kissing your hands and feet? No. It means it's ripping and tearing my hands and my feet. Rashi himself, this foremost of all rabbinic commentators, says that means they're mauling my hands and feet. 
This is just as powerful a description of crucifixion as they pierced my hands and feet. Because that's exactly what sharp lion's claws do. They pierce. With big claws, the picture here is of a lion ripping holes in my hands and my feet. Even as Yeshua's hands and feet were pierced with nails. So actually, either reading is a vivid and powerful and accurate depiction of crucifixion. All right, let's move on. Verse 17. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. The ability to see or count one's bones fits crucifixion. Why? Number one, you're naked on the cross, by the way. <laughs> Number two, the Roman scourging oh, would have ripped his flesh away. Number three, the cross would, would stretch you out. So we can, oh, because of all these, he can see his bones. This text, this text fits the description of crucifixion long before crucifixion was ever even invented. This also brings up Exodus 12 and the Pesach lamb with Passover coming up. The Torah is very clear that none of the, of the Passover lamb's bones could be broken. Look at Exodus 12, 43. These are the, are the regulations for the Passover meal. Don't break any of the bones of the lamb. Yeshua could see his bones, and unlike the two thieves on either side of him, the Romans did not break any of his bones. The text also says, they stared and gloat at me. Again, this shows it's a public execution, just like Yeshua's crucifixion. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them, they cast lots for my garment. There's actually two different prophecies that are being fulfilled here. Uh, the Roman soldiers, they first divided up his garments, but they didn't want to divide or tear Yeshua's uh, tunic, uh, which is all of one piece, so they cast lots for it, fulfilling the second prophecy. So they divided his outer clothes, and they cast lots for his inner uh, tunic. Look how precisely this is fulfilled. Look at John 19.23. When the soldiers crucified Yeshua, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who'll get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, and he quotes Psalm 22, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Every aspect of Psalm 22 is literally fulfilled in Yeshua's crucifixion. Notice also that the Romans uh, refused to tear Yeshua's tunic. Yeshua is our great high priest. The Torah in Leviticus 21, it says, the high priest cannot tear his clothes. Again, the scripture is fulfilled in Yeshua. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, don't be far from me. Uh, you, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. This is a plea for deliverance. And now after this, the tone of the psalm shifts. Before it was, why have you forsaken me? But you're holy and I trust in you. This is what's happening to me. Help, deliver me. And now it shifts. Look at Psalm 22, verse 22. I, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Yaakov, honor him. Revere him, all the descendants of Israel. For he hasn't despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He hasn't hidden his face from him, but he's listened to his cry for help. Now, as we've seen, this person described in Psalm 22, he's undergoing uh, this horrific death. He's finally laid in the dust of death. So then how can he now say in, in verse 22, I'll declare your name to my people. I'll praise you in the assembly. 
There's only one way this can happen. He is alive again. <laughs> the Lord rescued him through resurrection. And he, now, and he now exhorts all Israel to praise the Lord. Why? Look at verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He hasn't hidden his face from him. The psalm started off with exactly hiding his face from him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now we see in the end, the Lord has not hidden his face from his son. He has not forsaken him. He has not despised or scorned the suffering of Yeshua, his afflicted one. But rather, I look at verse 24 again, Psalm 22, 24. He's listened to his cry for help. The Lord vindicates Yeshua and demonstrates this vindication through the resurrection. So there was a temporary forsaking of the person who described here who's suffering in Psalm 22, but then an ultimate deliverance uh, and vindication and victory. This is an incredible picture of Yeshua in his crucifixion and resurrection. Verse 23, it says, All the descendants of Jacob, of Israel, uh, are told to praise the Lord. And then look down at verse 27. We read this. Not just Israel only, but all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. So now all the Gentiles, all the nations also praise the Lord. And it's Yeshua who has brought all the Gentile nations to the one true God of Israel. Because of the events described here in Psalm 22, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles will worship the Lord. Now, there is no one else this psalm could be describing. Only Yeshua has brought the Gentiles to the knowledge of the one true God of Israel. No one else has. Without Yeshua, the Gentiles would still be pagans. Israel would not have her Messiah. If this psalm is not about Yeshua, it's not about anyone. And it ends with this verse. Look at verse 31. He has done it. It can also be translated in the Hebrew, he has performed it or he has finished it. And because there's no impersonal pronoun in Hebrew, it can also be translated, it is finished. The exact words quoted by Yeshua on the cross. He quotes both the beginning and the end of Psalm 22. That's clearly referring to the entire psalm. He's done it. Utterly, fully, completely, it is finished. Hallelujah. So I want to go back to the beginning of Psalm 22, and I want to close by looking at some implications of Yeshua's cry. Back in Mark 15, verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because by truly understanding this cry, we unlock the secrets of who Yeshua truly is and what he did for you on the tree. She was questioned, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This question tells us two things on the overhead. It tells us, number one, on uh, the overhead, next slide. Uh, it tells us, first of all, the infinity of his suffering on the cross. As we discussed, if you were here last week, Yeshua doesn't say, my friends, my friends, why have you forsaken me? Even though all his friends had. And in terms of his physical pain, in his suffering, he doesn't say, oh, my head, my head, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, which he, he was suffering. Yeshua has experienced excruciating physical suffering, beating by, by the temple guards and Herod's officers, scourging with the Roman flagellum, which rips your back to shreds and reduces you to a bloody pulp, and finally nails driven through his hands and feet. And he were told this in Isaiah 52, verse 14. Many were appalled at him, 
His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond any human likeness. And yet, despite all this physical suffering, he's not said a word about any of this. Not a word. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, but did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep who's silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. But now, suddenly, here, he screams. That means something new is happening. There's a new kind of suffering going on. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on? His physical suffering is nothing compared to this because now the Father is forsaking him. My God is lost. Yeshua, having taken our sins upon himself, is suffering the judgment of that sin. Yeshua is going to hell. On the cross, he is in hell. We're told in Mark 15, verse 33, at noon, darkness comes over the whole land till three in the afternoon. And in the Bible, the image of darkness is used most often to describe hell, even more often than fire. So, for example, we read this in, in Matthew twenty-two twelve. How did you get in here without your wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. And he, the king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness with his weeping and gnashing of teeth. The most common image for hell in the scriptures is outer darkness. For God is light. And to be banished from the presence of God is to be thrown into the outer darkness. Now all of us have a sort of spiritual entropy in our hearts called sin. The physical world mirrors the spiritual world. Three hours of physical darkness on the cross is a picture of the darkness that was happening to Yeshua's soul. He was being plunged into the outer darkness, into the abyss, on the overhead. Because to be removed from the light of God, from the presence of God, is to go to hell. In this world, everything's winding down. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is moving toward random disorder. It's cooling off. It's spreading out. So, for example, uh, take a chicken out of the oven, sit it on your table. The chicken is not going to get hotter, is it? It's not even going to stay hot. It's going to get colder. It's losing energy. It's falling apart. After a few days, it's going to smell. <laughs> it's going to start to decompose and get rancid and to slowly disintegrate on the overhead. And that's true of us as well. We are all falling apart physically. And likewise, the Bible says there's also a spiritual entropy uh, as well. There's a spiritual entropy in your heart, and it's called sin. And it's a mirror of the entropy that's operating in the world. The scriptures say the, the, our world is subject to vanity, uh, to meaninglessness, uh, to frustration. It's running down. It's breaking apart. And so is your soul. What's in your soul? It's sin, which means you have a built-in tendency towards selfishness, towards self-absorption, towards self-justification, towards self-defense. And these things kill your humanity. 
It kills your ability to love and to give love. It kills your ability to, to have joy and to give joy. When you're in the grip of selfishness or self-pity or self-absorption, self you know that. You cannot give joy. You cannot experience joy. You can't give love or receive love. Now, the only reason we're not totally self-centered is that God, to some degree, is keeping us soft and warm and keeping our humanity from completely freezing over. He's keeping us from the outer darkness. The Bible says, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variation, no shifting shadow. No. Yeshua is the light that enlightens all men, we're told. The scriptures say the greatest and most just punishment that we'll have is this. If you want to evade God, if you want to, to leave God, if you want to get away from God, do you know what the most fair punishment is if, if you want to get away from God? Success. On the overhead. He'll give you success. C.S. Lewis says this. In the end, people who object to the doctrine of hell have to be asked a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out all sins at all costs and give you a fresh start? We're offering every miraculous help? He's done so. To forgive them? But they don't want to be forgiven. They will not be forgiven. Uh, to leave us alone? Oh, alas, that's exactly what he'll do. People who want to get away from God eventually will be allowed to. And when God totally removes himself, when the sun goes away, your humanity freezes. You're in, you're in the outer darkness. You're in the abyss. You can't love. You can't joy. You can't know. And this is what's happening to Yeshua on the cross. Yeshua's son went out. The father forsook him. Yeshua could no longer sense the Father's presence. He could no longer feel God's love. He could no longer sense that God would ever come back to him. There's just silence and darkness from heaven. The Father was gone. And Yeshua's heart froze. He was plunged into the outer darkness. Yeshua went to hell that's what his cry from the cross means. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate punishment is to be banished from the glory of God, from the presence of his brightness, from the presence of his love. God was gone. Yeshua was sent to hell, and he went into infinite torment. But this cry from the cross... It doesn't just show us that, it went, that he went to hell. It doesn't just show us that he took upon himself the judgment that your sins and my sins deserved. It goes even beyond that. Because Yeshua doesn't say, you have forsaken me. No. The person being forsaken, Yeshua, is nonetheless saying, my God, my God. That has never happened before and has never happened since. Remember, Yeshua is suffering an infinitely worse uh, punishment than even a normal hell. And on the very last day, we read this in the book of Revelation uh, about those who rebel against the Lord. Revelation 16, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the eminent people and the commanders uh, and the wealthy and the strong uh, and every slave and free 
hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said that to the mountains uh, and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For, great is, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Notice, by the way, we're not told on the last day when people who don't want to be with God, who've rebelled against God, that on that judgment day, it's not God who says to the mountains, fall on us, but it's they themselves who say to the mountains, fall on us. No one has ever gone to hell who didn't want to. Milton in Paradise Lost, he perfectly captures this on the overhead, this mentality, when he has Satan fist in heaven saying, better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And that's what everybody who goes to hell feels. Even though there's no one who actually rules in hell and there's no one who's a slave in heaven. It's all a lie. But that's what sin does. People will have their hearts so hardened that they'll say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the rocks, hide us, rather than submit to God. No one has ever gone to hell saying, my God, my God, except one. Yeshua was the only one who ever said to God, who ever prayed to God, this is a prayer, my God, my God, while he's being sent to hell. The word my indicates intimacy. There's only a very limited number of people that I can address this way. My Elizabeth, my Rachel, my, my Naomi. This indicates the people who are the closest to me in all the world. At Mount Sinai, the Lord made a covenant with his people Israel, entering into a personal covenant relationship. And he says in Leviticus 26, 12, I'll walk among you and be your God, and you'll be my people. Yeshua is clinging to the covenant, even as he's going to hell. And, and, and he even doubles the phrase, my God, my God, which is the Hebraic way of emphasis. Yeshua is praying from hell. And on the overhead, as we mentioned last week, if you were here, in Moby Dick, Captain Ahab says, from hell's heart I stab at thee. But next slide, Yeshua in essence says to the Father, from hell's heart I love thee. He's loving the God who's rejecting him. He's praying to the God who's sending him to hell. People who are sent to hell, they hate God. But Yeshua does the opposite. He's being forsaken by the Father. But he does not hate the Father. He's the only person who ever went to hell still loving God. The only person who ever went to hell with his heart still soft and open to the Lord. On the overhead, no one has ever suffered like he suffered. And, and also, no one has ever loved the Lord like he did. And Yeshua always refers to God as my Father, my God. So, for example, in his resurrection appearance, we read this in John 20, verse 17. Yeshua says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He goes out of his way to refer to the Lord as, as my God, my Father. Why? Because Yeshua's relationship to the Father is so unique. It's unlike anything anyone else's relationship to the Father. And that means there's never been a hell like this. Because there's never been a relationship like this between the Yeshua and the Father. His one and only Son. The Son was in the bosom of the Father for all eternity. Look at John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. 
but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and in the bosom of the Father, thank you, he has made him known. Hallelujah. And so for the Father to cast out his Son, and for the Son to voluntarily receive that, means that the hell Yeshua experienced in just those three hours on the cross is far deeper than the hell that anyone else would ever experience for all eternity. He went to hell. He went to a deeper hell than anyone has ever gone. And on the overhead, these words from the cross don't only teach us about the infinity of his suffering and the infinity of his love. Finally, they also teach us the secret of his power. Because when he was being forsaken and thrown into hell and experiencing infinite pain that we can't even imagine, he nonetheless stayed true. He kept praying. He held on to the covenant. And he never gave up. When he died, yes, he gave up his spirit, but he never gave up. He stayed in control. In fact, he's, even, he's quoting scripture to the very end. You know, Yeshua... He, for him to cry out, my God, my God, you know, continuing this intimacy, continuing to reach out to the Father, continuing to hold on to the covenant, means that from hell's heart, I obey thee. Yeshua came as our substitute, as our mediator, as our great high priest. The word of God made flesh. The Sakhina, glory of God incarnate, tabernacling among us. And even when God was forsaking him, he clung to the scriptures. Even on the cross, he's quoting the Bible. You cut him and he bleeds scripture. And he knows that Psalm 22 ends in triumph and victory and vindication. Psalm 22, it starts out very dark, but it ends in triumph. As we saw, it describes a public execution, but it ends by saying this. Look at Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations... They'll bow down before him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They'll proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. On the overhead. Psalm 22 says someone will be publicly executed in a crucifixion, and when people remember it, the nations from the very ends of the earth will turn to God in gladness. And throughout the rest of time, and throughout all generations, people knowing about this execution will turn and rejoice and praise the Lord. And no one can deny that this happened with Yeshua. Yeshua's crucifixion and resurrection has turned untold millions of people from every tongue and tribe and people group and ethnicity and race to the one true God, the God of Israel. Yeshua was true to the word of God. He was true to the covenant. Do you feel forsaken? Do you feel for abandoned? Do you feel like God's not there? You need to see Yeshua stay true to you, to his own hurt. He did not forsake you on the cross. Indeed, Yeshua took hell rather than forsake you. And if Yeshua loved you so much that he wouldn't forsake you, in spite of all God's judgment thrown at him, what makes you think that he'll forsake you because of something you can throw at him? Because of your, because of, uh, your failure? No. Yeshua has not forsaken you. Yeshua was true to you 
Now you be true to him. Trust in him and his word. Love him, obey him, walk with him. There is now an open temple. The veil was torn in two. You can enter God's presence through the blood of the lamb. There's now an open tomb. Death has been conquered. There's now an open heart. Even the centurion who put him to death had his heart melted and he believed. Why was Yeshua forsaken? Answer it now in your heart. Why? For you. And for you. And for you. And for me. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Music team, come on up. Hallelujah. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to suffer and be forsaken for me, for us. Yeshua, the Father, forsook you on the tree so that we might be accepted. He abandoned you so that we might be adopted into his family. Yeshua, you suffered like no one else. You suffered infinite pain and torment and judgment and wrath as you became sin for us on the tree. Like that Tola'at worm in Psalm 22. You were attached to the tree and you bled for us that we might have life. We live by feeding on you, even as those baby worms feed on the mother and carry her crimson stain for the rest of their lives. Though our sins are as scarlet, you, Yeshua, make them white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be as wool. Yeshua, you literally went to hell for us, and yet you still loved the Father and obeyed the Father and were faithful to the covenant, even from hell. No one has ever loved God like you. And when you completed the atonement, you cried out, it's finished. You were faithful to us to the very end. Help us now to be faithful to you. Because you are forsaken, we never will be forsaken if we trust in you. Yeshua, we love you. Yeshua, we thank you. We worship you. You are our bridegroom, God. You are the lover of our soul. We commit our life to you, even as you did for us. And we pray this all in your name, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.